Hello, and welcome to Literary Work in Progress, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Caitlin, and I am the specialist of snowflakes. I'm Emily R. King, and I want to be in a love triangle. I'm Cameron, and I'm a member of the Necrocracy. I'm Karen McManus, and I like a good enemies-to-friends trope. So this week, we have a couple of guests, actually. We have Emily R. King, who wrote The Hundredth Queen, and also a bunch of other books. Do you want to give us the list? (laughs) No, it's just that series right now. Okay. (laughs) The Hundredth Queen series. Awesome. And we also have Karen M. McManus, the author of One of Us is Lying. It debuted on the New York Times bestseller list, and it's still there. It's been there for 19 weeks. Is that right? Yeah. That's right. It's been published in 27 foreign territories and was recently put into development as a television series by the E-Network. So tell us about your book. Yes. So I like to call it The Breakfast Club with Murder. (laughs) It is about five students who walk into detention, but only four of them walk out. And the fifth student was the creator of the school's notorious gossip app, which kind of terrorized the school. And he was about to spill secrets on the other four who were in the room with him. So when investigators learn that his death wasn't an accident, they go from witnesses to suspects in his death. And so the story follows two parallel paths. There's the mystery of what happened to this character, Simon. And then there's also what happens to these other four kids as their secrets come out and their lives intersect and they find themselves in the middle of this spotlight. I actually read it a couple of months ago and I was just like on board from page one. It was amazing. And I love that you've got so many great like social commentary things going on in there. And it's just such a wonderful book. So if you have not seen it yet, I mean, if you haven't read it yet, please go check it out. So this week we are talking about tropes. Before we get into it, I did want to just say, I mean, everything that we talk about on the podcast is more in the line of like advice and there's lots of different things that you can do as These are more like guidelines than actual rules. It's true. There are no real rules in writing. And actually in this one in particular, I wanted to just give the disclaimer. Disclaimer. Yes. The disclaimer that tropes are probably not something you should research before you write a book and then write specifically to add tropes in something. It's a good thing to be aware of rather than something to try to put into your book, if that makes sense. I would just maybe put it slightly differently that I think it's good to have a working knowledge of tropes when you're writing, but not that you should directly use one to fuel the other, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think it's good for a writer to be aware of tropes as they're writing, but not to necessarily seek them out. Seek them out. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that 100%. I think it's good to be aware, you know, of um, what a trope is. And, and the fact that there are positives and negatives to them, you know, so they're, they're not all bad. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit later. But you also want to be careful of not being so tropey that you veer into stereotype. So we're going to give a quick definition of tropes. And all of us kind of came up with our own little thoughts about it. So we are not talking about tropes as a literary or rhetorical device. We're talking about commonly used character plot and story tools in books. It's a convention of plot, genre, character type, situation, and a story that's been used before, and it becomes a familiar building block of writing. So the thing that, you know, strikes me when I think about tropes, and I definitely use them in my storytelling, and I think they can be useful because they do mirror relatable situations, you know, or people or experiences. So if you're 
goal is to create a story that captures the reader's interest, um, tropes can be great. What you don't want to have them do is, you know, everyone kind of like rolls their eyes because it's so obvious and they've seen it a hundred times before. So I think the sweet spot is relatable, but not predictable. And I think that tropes also vary depending on what you write. So it varies on the genre. And there are some that you'll find in different genres versus others. Like in fantasy, we see a lot of the wise old man or wizard that helps the hero along their their trek or their quest. And even sending the hero on a quest in a fantasy can be considered a trope because we see it so often. And then, for example, in romance, tropes often revolve around what keeps the hero and the heroine apart. So you see like the rich boy with a peasant girl or you see arranged marriages or love triangles and lots of repeats in romance as well. So we were going to talk about some of our favorite tropes. I have some that are my not favorite, but I like talking about. <laughs> like, I know Emily wants to be in a love triangle, but it's not my favorite trope. <laughs> I think there are some people who do it extremely well, but I think that's one that has been done quite a bit. And so if you don't have a little bit extra or don't have it fleshed out, it is one that people roll their eyes over. Special snowflakes, because I'm a special snowflake, which I think is the mean way of saying the chosen one. There are people who like the chosen one trope, and then there are people who don't like the special snowflake trope. So it just depends on whether which side you fall on that. Or in thrillers, I feel like the sociopath genius enemy is a trope. Or in thrillers or detective stories, a genius that doesn't relate to others like Sherlock Holmes or Bones. Or in house, where you have the doctor who doesn't quite get what's going on, but he's a genius, and so everyone revolves around him. Do you think it would be fair to say that the closer a trope is to a cliche, the more work you have to put in to make it actually be entertaining? I think that's fair. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I would agree. (laughs) Some other fun ones are a family of choice, where you have a group of characters who come together like as a team, like in Six of Crows. I love those. That's actually probably my favorite trope. I love... Well, I love like, I think it's like found family, right? So people kind of come together and they almost choose one another. But I also like it when people are forced together and they don't choose one another, but they still have to work together and they have to like, you know, figure out how to do that and accomplish whatever task is at hand without killing each other, literally or figuratively. (laughs) Depends on your genre. Yeah, exactly. Well, I like the chosen one trope. And I don't call it special snowflake, I guess, because I think that most fantasy novels are chosen one. I mean, almost all of them. Even if you take that trope and invert it, generally, that's what you see. And most of the classic fantasy is chosen one. I also like anti-hero revenge stories. I can't get enough of them. And I think that, honestly, the darker, the better. Anything that has to do with an anti-hero going after, you know, someone who killed someone or hurt them, or I just love it. I'm a fan of the Determinator, which are characters that refuse to give up in spite of overwhelming odds. And actually, particularly at Subset, which is kind of the determined defeatist, which is a character who presses on despite believing in all honesty that they're going to fail. A good example of this uh, could be Kaladin from The Way of Kings. I know a lot of people think he's just whiny, but personally, I think his story arc of pressing on, like there's a moment, spoilers, where he's contemplating suicide and he decides not to do it. And he's going to go back and he's going to try to save these men, knowing, like he goes back knowing that he's going to fail. This is not going to work out, but he's going to go do it anyway. Mm -hmm. And I just think, I think that's really compelling as a story motif. Mm -hmm. 
That one's a really good example of found family, too. The it one is. where people don't kill each other and they don't work together well Initi- at first. It's initially, that group that he's yeah. in, they call it Bridge 4. Everyone else views this as a death sentence because everyone who gets assigned to Bridge 4 dies. By the time you get to the next novel, being called Bridge 4 is a badge of honor. And I think watching that turnaround is immensely satisfying. Oh, I like the um, bad boy with the heart of gold trope. And um, also the bad boy, good girl romance. Like that one too. Used them both. And <laughs> one of us is lying. <laughs> I think one of us is lying is really like based on stereotypes, you know, like the five characters are very much supposed to start out stereotypical. And it's almost like too on the nose, you know, I think for some people when it starts. Isn't there a line? bad boy character. Isn't there a line at the beginning where they're like, we're like a high school stereotype. I loved that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm like, I get it. I know what I'm doing. They're very stereotypical. Um, And they are. And this one character in particular, you know, he's got like a criminal background and a tragic backstory and he rides a motorcycle and he's all like angsty. But I think how you sort of get past that a little bit is by giving people, you know, really relatable characteristics that make them more human. So he's all those things, but he also has this pet lizard that he takes really good care of and he likes horror movies and he, you know, hates yard work, but is embarrassed about the state of his yard. And it's just like little things like that that keep adding up and make somebody feel like a 3D person and not, you know, that cardboard cutout that they might be starting out as i think that's really good advice like just in general writing advice you shouldn't have cardboard cutout characters but especially (laughs) like with tropes i feel like that's where tropes fail sometimes is when you have that feeling like this is what's going to happen in the story i understand what's going to happen in the story because i can see the bad boy with the motorcycle but it's those extra things that make you realize that this is not the author saying i know this trope works and so i'm just going to stick it in my book and hope for the best like it's fleshed out and it's a real story that you can understand. Right, right. Because otherwise it is, yeah, it's kind of like lazy writing, you know, mm-hmm. you think, well, this is a trope and it works and people like it and here it is. And I'm not going to put any more effort behind creating this character other than making sure they kind of fit this, this kind of expected um, role that I, I put them into. So I kind of wanted to talk just between us, why is it so important to be aware of tropes? I mean, we've talked a little bit about needing to be aware of them so that we don't hit them too close on the nose or like just have the trope be the story rather than fleshing out characters, but why else do we need to to be aware of them rather than trying to use them? I think, well, we've kind of circling, like, what you were just saying about how it can feel kind of, it feels like a plot device, actually. You know, the character needs the information to, in order to go on and save the world, and at that exact moment, here comes this old wise wizard that knows exactly what they need to hear at that exact moment, and then the wizard disappears again. It does feel like a cop-out, instead of an actual, like you said, a real character with an intent and purpose other than what would revolve around the main character and the hero going on to save the world. And so I think that if you are going to use them, you should always know the why behind it. And like you said, really, really flesh it out as much as you can. Because there's only so much you could do. It's not the wizard story, but enough where it doesn't feel like a placeholder or a plot device. Right? So, so building off of the mentor, I think if you, if you absolutely have to have an old wizard mentor in your story, I think it'd be extremely useful to go and read the wizard mentor tropes page. Because when you're reading that, you will see all the th- all the ways it's been done that people have liked, and all the ways it's been done that people have hated enough to post here that they didn't like it. The tropes page. You want to give us more backstory on what the, the tropes, tropes page, page is? Oh well, <laughs> so 
there's this website called TV Tropes, which oh, okay. is a database of a whole bunch of nerds who've essentially turned tropes into its own lexicon. Lexicon? One of those lexicon? Words. One of those words. So, for example, you just Google search TV Tropes Mentor, and you will get a page that is full of Gandalfs and Dumbledores, etc., all the way down. And it's a goldmine of information for how to do this effectively and how to really not do it effectively. Or how not to redo something that's already been done. Exactly, exactly. So the more you know, the more you can be good at it. For instance, the love triangle thing. You don't see a lot of boy-boy-girl love triangles. And I've researched why, and it's because readers really... I mean, girl-girl-boy love triangle, sorry. You don't see a lot of one boy trying to choose between two girls because it irritates the heck out of readers. They don't want an indecisive boy. It's okay when it's a trait of a girl, but when it's a boy, he's just seen as a player, and he's not... You know, there's no heart of gold there. He's just using Uh these, these women... And so it's really hard to do and to write. And I can't think of an example. There like are very few, especially in YA, where it's done well, where you're not irritated and hate him. If you want the character to be hated, though, that might be a good trope to you. So it can go both ways. I would say that probably relates to readership, too, because love triangles tend to be a romance thing and romance readers tend to be women. That's not a hard and fast rule, but... I think can, women but the like, bachelor is so popular so it kind of blows my mind that like this trope in YA isn't but we just the readers have no patience for it. I will say that I feel like researching tropes before you write a story is okay for some people but for some people I think it shoots them in the foot. Like for me if I went and looked at all that information I would have just frozen and been like I'm going to accidentally write all of these things <laughs> whereas after the fact I can go and say oh I'm too close to this and I need to change some details or I need to like flesh this out more I need I it helps me to revise personally rather than to research beforehand but that's my own personal thing. I think if you spent too much time on the TV tropes page, um, you, yeah, you would feel there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> well, there isn't really, right? <laughs> and that's true, right? I mean, everything has been done in some way. The question is, how fresh can you make it, you know, and how compelling can you make it? But it could be kind of paralyzing, you know, if you start, uh, if you start there. I feel like the, the best thing you can do for your writing is to write a story. This is me writing according to me. Everybody writes the way they need to. Cameron's giving me a funny look right now. He's going to say something after this. That's fine. Um, <laughs> I feel like for me, I need to write my story first, and then I just write it exactly the way I want it, and then I do all the research and the editing that needs to happen according to like a marketing slash audience standpoint. Mm-hmm. I need to get the story up first, though. So personally, I'm not, I'm not disputing the fact that different people need to do different things, mm-hmm. but so personally, the first book... I ever wrote was a cliche song. It was only after I finished writing that book that I started actually kind of researching out about how other people were writing what they were. And part of that was getting familiar with TV tropes. I'd like to think since then (laughs) with my greater awareness, my work has become substantially less cliche by being aware of what cliches actually exist and when people don't have patience for them. I think that that's probably true also because you can't read everything. I mean, hopefully we're all well-read enough that we know the things that are done a lot. I mean, like the wizard thing. Everybody knows about the wise wizard that comes in and then he dies like the second to last book. (laughs) That always happens. (laughs) Maybe not the second to last book, but you guys know what I mean. Towards Um, the end. (laughs) Towards the end. Well, I mean, so for example, (laughs) you you can take it a step further and you can say, well, everyone knows that heroes are orphans, but do you know why? That's uh-huh. the case. In my personal experience, it's because, well, if the hero is an orphan, you don't have to worry about their parents being annoying and getting in the way. But that is a crappy reason. It's true. I know, no, no, I know, I know, but... I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but, but if you don't know that, reason. but if yeah. you don't know that, and you think, well, I'm not going to follow the cliche, I'm going to give my hero parents. 
But then you make the parents absentee and they might as well be dead anyway. And you're falling afoul of the same problems that you would if he was an orphan in the first place. If you're aware of how people have tried to get around the orphan problem, then you can actually fix the problem and not just fall into the same trap lots of other people have. The orphan thing isn't necessarily a problem as long as there's a good reason for them being an orphan. I'm not saying it can't work, but Mm -hmm. I'm saying if you're trying to avoid it, you need to actually know what you're avoiding. That's true. I do think it's really helpful to be aware of negative tropes, not just the negative side of tropes, but things like the dark-skinned aggressor trope. If you are writing about more than one culture, this happens a whole lot in fantasy books where an entire culture is vilified because they're the bad guys without showing that some of them are... It makes it hard to both believe your world because no culture is like that where you have an entire set of people who are just bad people. But it also doesn't say good things about like the way you view humanity either. Yeah. And you can get in trouble that way. I'm, I mean, I know authors that have done this by accident, and it's not like they're people who are trying to make a statement about that stuff. But if you do it by accident... But if you're aware, you can not make those mistakes. Right. It's really important to be aware of things that are going on, both the tropes and in just the writing community, because I feel like it's something that's growing right now. And like there are a lot of conversations happening about stuff like this, so it's really good to be in sync with what's going on. I think if you use a lot of tropes and cliches, good luck trying to get an agent and get all the way to the editor. I think the reason a lot of these conversations are happening in the writing community is because people are really surprised that, you know, the dark aggressor trope made it all the way to the point where, you know, there are arcs out. I think that we're trying to stem a lot of that right from the beginning and talking about what kind of tropes damage young readers and how they feel about themselves, I think that that's part of the growth that needs to happen and being aware of what those tropes are and avoiding them. Because it's not just writing badly, it's impacting readership and who you're writing for. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's a really good point. And there's a lot of really important conversations happening, you know, this year in particular around that. And I think people are becoming more aware. And as a result, you know, the stories that are are making it through are featuring less of that. But there's still so much work to be done. So the more aware that people are, the better. I think one thing to realize with all of that is if you've written something like that, just go change it. It's okay. Like, I mean, it's not okay to perpetuate it it's okay to be like oh i made a mistake and then go fix it that's the first thing you do and if it's to the point where other people are reading it and you're hurting people then you apologize and you just do it right the next time so we're going to move on to the second portion of our podcast where we review a first chapter that was submitted to us we'll first look at the positive things the things we thought worked really well and then we're going to move on to things that might need a second look. We try not to be prescriptive, which means we try not to tell you how to rewrite your story according to the way we think that it should be, but rather try to point out things that we feel like might need a second look. So this particular submission is about a boy named Hai in Meiji, Japan in the year 1900. And he is really into trains, it seems like. He knows a lot about them. And he works on the train and is in a sticky situation with his family, it seems like. He really wants to please them and take care of them, it seems like. It's a stepfamily getting some Cinderella vibes here. But they aren't very kind to him. So one of the things I really liked is that I feel like we got a really clear picture of where we are and the character's personality. He seems kind of submissive, but like he's really excited about the trains it seems like he knows so much about them and I think that that part of the voice made me realize what was important to him like I said it seems like 
a Cinderella story, and there's some really great sensory and grounding details throughout the whole submission. I'll agree that I thought there were, I think we're going to talk more about details later, but there's a lot of really good concrete details that help ground the scene. I don't normally like diving into character descriptions as early as they were done here, but I actually think they were done pretty well because it was very much related to the work that High is doing. So it, you know, it kind of, um, it was almost atmospheric as opposed to just a, a character description. And the clothing, I thought, really evoked the setting. I think there was, you know, one phrase, like an oversized gray dragonfly. I love that. I thought that was really good. I also thought there was one phrase that sort of jumped out at me in that first page um, where he talks about how a useful person can't be discarded. And that just really grabbed me. It seemed like a really interesting um, glimpse into a menacing world. I'm not sure it played out later, which is one of the things I'll talk about later, but it definitely caught my attention. I really liked that line as well. I did too. Yeah. I thought it was great voice. Really intriguing. I, I got, it felt like a gender swap Cinderella. Like that's yeah right. Which I really liked because I can't really think of when I've seen that. So that's a really interesting way to kind of take maybe this underprivileged trope and kind of turn it on its head with a different gender. We see women in submissive positions quite a bit in, well, everywhere, (laughs) fiction and in real life. And so it was really great to see it be a boy. I thought that that kind of surprised me, which kept me intrigued. And then, of course, the setting really was fantastic. You have a really strong sense of where you are and what is important to hide, which was great. So I will say the Cinderella angle did not occur to me while I was reading it, but thinking about it now, having it been suggested, it does also sound interesting to me. It was the stepsister that clinched it for me. Mm-hmm. Like, stepsister. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, and, and the ball, right? Isn't she going to a ball? Yes. Or, or, yes. or similar? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we'll move on to things that might need a second look. As I was reading, I felt like I didn't have a really great measure of the main character's place in the world. I feel like his stepfamily is quite well-to-do, and there are even some references to them maybe owning the tree line. Maybe It wasn't explicitly stated, but it seems like maybe that's what was going on, one of the tree lines. But I wasn't really sure how he fit into it. That could be something that is very quickly remedied in the next couple of chapters. I just wasn't sure how he had come to be where he is, and it seemed kind of jarring to not have any hints at how it had happened. You read his role is with his family and on the trains and all that, right? Okay, that's true. I didn't catch that either. The sheer number of things, of chores that he had, combined with what seemed to be the sheer number of skills he had, um, you know, everything from his taking on the lanterns, polishing benches, apparently he, it sounds like he built a custom bathroom. And, <laughs> and then when there's trouble with the train engine, they call him in to fix it. That's so, the one that set me off. I was yeah. like, he does that too? Right. So on the one hand, I, I really enjoy super competent characters. But on the other hand, it this level of he has so many different things that he has to do was distracting to me. In that it feels like if he was this useful, why are his circumstances so poor? I'm not saying that it couldn't happen. But I was really hoping for more surrounding detail to justify the fact that the same guy who is apparently the only guy they can have come fix the engines, is also the only guy who can take the lamps down. Or polish the benches. Or polish the benches, etc. Et mm. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that that setup can't work, but I feel like it needs to be developed more in order for me to not be distracted. Well, and actually, the one thing that made me really question all of that is that he makes a point of saying he's not wearing a train uniform. He's not one of the employees, it seems like. He makes such a big point of saying that. Did you want to add something? Yeah. 
I was, yeah, I, I didn't quite know what the, the big picture was after I read the first chapter because, um, you know, as I said earlier, that one line kind of stuck out to me and I thought that he's trying to be useful because he's in danger, you know, in some way. This is a dangerous world. But that didn't really play out in the rest of the chapter. You know, it seemed like he was irritated with his stepsister and there was definitely a power imbalance there. But it didn't seem like he was afraid of her. And when he's interacting with some of the others in the railway, they seemed, you know, they were maybe kind to him, giving him food or respectful of his abilities. You know, it seemed like he had a choice in terms of when he was going to do certain things or not do certain things. So I was just left a little uncertain as to what the true conflict of the story was. And maybe it is a Cinderella story and it's all about the power dynamics within his family. But um, I had this hint that there were larger forces at play and I I didn't feel like I knew what those might be by the end of the chapter. I think for me, part of that uncertainty with the stakes at large had to do with a lack of details on the specifics of his family relationship. I mean, I think mm -hmm. it really all boiled down to he has a step family and they're better off than he is. And I'm not sure that I got a whole lot more information than that. So having the discrepancy between, again, I'm the only person who's going to be able to fix the train, and also they expect me to serve them all breakfast. And to me, that that what seems like incompetency on the step family's part, that the, the guy who's keeping their business running, they're also going to make him serve them breakfast. I'm wondering how is this even still afloat? They're, if they're mismanaging their assets that badly, how is this still even still working? Which I feel like there could very easily be an explanation for it, but I didn't Agreed. feel like we had the tools to, to understand it. And because it's in the first chapter, it's drawing enough that it's difficult to want to continue reading when Agreed. you're like, I'm not sure. I mean, so I'll say it's interesting enough that I really, I want it to work. Like as I'm reading it, I'm like, I'm mm -hmm. like looking, I'm thinking I want this to work. And I just feel like we weren't given quiet enough to make it work. And if Cinderella is the basis for the story, the original Cinderella, the stepmother was of course in dire straits financially and they started selling off things and part of the reason they had Cinderella work for her was because she couldn't afford to have servants I think if that is the case it would just be great to have that there just some sort of indication that they can't afford any other work and that's why he's doing everything if that is the case if that's the background I think this I had kind of assumed it was because mm -hmm. I got the Cinderella vibes but it could I could also just be as well as wrong I feel like this is a good example of what we were talking about earlier, where we have, I mean, Cinderella retellings are something that happen a lot, but if there aren't reasons behind what's going on, if you just have a cardboard step family that's like, we don't like you and so you have to work for us, versus like yeah. real concrete reasons to do whatever. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. It's like, I, I couldn't figure out why his step family was treating him that way. And I know it's only the first chapter and we don't need to know everything. But there, there just wasn't maybe enough behind them to um, to start getting hints of what the relationship was meant to be. And and when that happens, I think you default to tropes, you know, like I'm thinking, OK, wicked stepsister, you know, mm -hmm. she's she's shallow and she's jealous. And, and that's all that's going on here. So she, um, she could fix engines. You try and fill in those blanks, you know, when they're not there. Yeah, I will say that while I really loved a lot of the concrete detail, I felt a little overwhelmed by it. When you have this depth of concrete detail where you have like the texture of the cedar benches and the color of the thing hanging off of the glasses and how they're actually goggles and not glasses and the glasses scratched in this particular way, I was really paying attention to those details, assuming that the goggles would be really, really important because we spent so much time on them, but then they weren't. It was just a detail. And I think That's what I thought too. I was waiting for that to pay off. 
mm-hmm. at some point, you know, there was something was going to happen that would make us understand that the goggles were special. And that's a lot of brain time, you know, that you're dedicating as a reader to something that ultimately, it seems anyways, isn't all that important. And particularly when you're setting up your character and you're setting up your world and your relationship dynamic, you don't have that much mental real estate in the reader's brain maybe to take with uh, things that don't matter. Yeah. And I think that the thing about that is when a character focuses that much on the details, it says a lot about the character. So you're picking up on what they notice tells us what's important to them somewhat. And so that's part of the reason why you pay attention because If it's important enough to the character to describe the goggles, then it must be really important to the story. And then when it doesn't pay off, you get really frustrated. Then you kind of stop listening to the character and what's important. And they lose a bit of that that voice that they have and what makes them different and distinct. And it just sounds like narration, just kind of blah narration. So when you are going to pick those details, try and pick something that is important or says something about the character. So something about whether he likes the goggles and he wears them or something like that. I, I felt like he loved the trains that came through, mm-hmm. which I, yeah. which was really great. You could tell with the description was something that was personal to him. So in that way it was, it felt kind of heavy and somewhat repetitive and some of it unnecessary. So if you be trimming those things back, I don't know. So maybe said more simply, we feel like you have a lot of really great concrete details in fact, just too many of them. And so... They, for all we know, they're important to the next chapter. We have no right. idea. It's I mean, just it the could, first it chapter. It could pay off. Yep. The, yeah. the thing about that, though, is the first chapter of your book is like that prime real estate where you are setting up all those things. And so it's something to consider that all of us got hung up on all of those details. So actually, along those lines, it's a general good idea to do a read aloud edit. And you might catch... There are actually some very long, complicated sentences in this. Like the first sentence of the entire submission was very long and had like some echoing rhymes and some stuff in it that made me stop and read it a couple of times. It might be a good idea to just do a read aloud. And when you can't get through a sentence without stopping, just check it. And sometimes you, um, those extra details will fall out as you are reading out loud because you realize how many times you've restated something or whatever. Did you want to talk about the useful person cannot be discarded? Oh yeah. I think I mostly covered that. Um, just that I, I didn't feel like it was it paid off and, and I really wanted it to, you know, I wanted a sense of a very menacing world. Um, and I didn't come away with that. I came away with, you know, kind of a, an irritating world and, and one of inequality and power imbalance, but it, it didn't seem as though he was in danger. So that sort of made me question, well, yeah. did I just misread it? You know, maybe I did, maybe I wasn't paying enough attention at the beginning or I just misinterpreted what the author was trying to set up. So that took me out of the chapter a little bit because it didn't end where I thought it would. And, and you know, where it ended, I felt like it kind of ended with a whimper, you know, as opposed to a bang because it kind of ends with the stepbrother and sister kind of coming in. And, and it seems like maybe he's not happy about that, but it wasn't an oof moment for me. So I, I thought lots of the, the details were terrific. I loved the voice. I, I felt like I could really get to like this character, um, but I wasn't 100% drawn in at the end. You know, I, I think I would read on, but I'd read on thinking, okay, let's <laughs> let's pick it up. At least for me, one of the we had the allure of you know a useful person is not discarded. It conjures the image of somebody who is, at least in my mind, struggling to find ways to do enough stuff that the people over them won't just get rid of him. But that's not what that's not what we have here. We don't have a use. We don't have someone who's being useful. We have someone who is absolutely essential. 
it's like it, yeah. it, they, if they got rid of him, everything would fall over and burn down. So it, it doesn't quite doesn't quite line up. Well, and we also don't know what discarded means. We don't know what the stakes are here. That's fair. That's fair, too. Exactly. Yeah. So this is just a note for me, and I could be completely wrong. I majored in Asian studies, and it's been a while. But Meiji Japan ended in 1916, and it was mostly a top-down thing. So they were starting to modernize. They started having trains. They started to bring in things to industrialize. But the period that you're talking about with the stepsister speaking English and, like, having French silks and it transferring down to, like, the people being fascinated with Western culture and stuff wasn't until post-Meiji period. So it would be, like, after 1916. And the story is set in 1900. And so I was a little bit confused about that. There's a really great book by Junichiro Tanizaki called Naome. I can't pronounce it right. I don't speak Japanese, guys. I'm majoring in Chinese stuff. But I read this one for Japanese literature class, which is talking about the, the period that you're talking about, where you have fascination with Western culture in Japan. And so I just recommend that you have someone do a sensitivity read for you who knows the history and would know about the culture Especially because I get the feeling that this is historical because they're, yes, so definitely, yeah, for sure. And just one other thing, you don't find Western-style toilets in Japanese train stations even now a lot of times because they feel like they're unsanitary. And so the fact that you're talking about a Western-style toilet on a train back in 1900, I don't think that would have been a thing. But maybe it would have, and I'm wrong. (laughs) Anyway, so I think that's all we've got. Is that right? Anybody else want to add anything? No. Okay. Well, make sure you check out Karen's book, One of Us is Lying, and Emily's book, The Hundredth Queen, for literary work in progress. (laughs) Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hi, Caitlin here. If you're interested in looking at the submission that was featured in today's podcast, you can find it on our website, literarywip.wixsite.com slash podcast. That's literarywip.wixsite.com slash podcast. If you're interested in submitting your work for us to look at, you can find our submission guidelines on that same website. And we'd really appreciate it if you subscribe to our podcast in iTunes and leave us a rating and comment while you're there because it helps other people to discover our podcast. Thanks and see you next week.